I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. On April 28th, Washington Post Live hosted a series of conversations on digital inclusion. I kicked things off with Christina Ishmael, Deputy Director of the Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology. We covered a lot of ground in 20 minutes, from the importance of access to broadband to the importance of making that access available to everyone. So there have been big investments um, to help with the home access divide, uh, and that is exactly where we are now. And so we, um, through the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program, we know that about 50 million households qualify for free and kind of reduced price for that stipend um, that they are providing through the ACP, but only 17 million households have signed up for it. Ishmael talks about how they are pushing to close that divide, the obstacles to getting financial assistance where it's most needed, and what she'd ask for if I were a genie granting her three wishes. Her answers were crystal clear. Digital access is pretty fundamental to all parts of daily life um, and for broader participation in society. How is access to that digital life a key component of education? Yeah. So in March of 2020, when their doors shut to the physical school buildings, we um, sent kids home and moved into an emergency remote learning situation. Um, we realized at that point, of course, uh, that not everyone had home access. And of course, we had been working in this space, especially within education and within educational technology for quite some time. The FCC had been working on this prior to the pandemic as well. But it was that moment that we knew we needed that continuity of learning to continue and provide some sort of stable learning environment. And uh, not everyone had access to do that. And so that was that moment that we have certainly um, looked back on and been able to uh, provide as, as many resources as possible to um, state education agencies as well as to the local school districts and then community-based organizations as well. And so there have been big investments um, to help with the home access divide. Uh, and that is exactly where we are now. And so we, um, through the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program, we know that about 50 million households qualify for free and kind of reduced price for that stipend um, that they are providing through the ACP, but only 17 million households have signed up for it. So there's still that massive gap that we are trying to actively work with educators, with school districts, um, with those community-based organizations to help adopt um, that affordable connectivity program to ensure that they are connected at home. You said 17 million have not signed up. Have signed up. Have signed up. Have signed up. <clears throat> but how many are you hoping to sign up? Well, we would love to hit the 50 million. <laughs> right. So why so why only 17 million? What what's awareness the issue here? is a huge issue. Awareness is a huge issue. Um, the other thing is it is a federal program and um, it has a finite bucket of resources as far as the dollars. And so once the money runs out, Congress would have to appropriate and allocate more dollars towards that. So we have a lot of folks that are hesitant to sign up for something knowing that it could possibly end. Um, and we also have communities that don't necessarily trust federal programs, and rightfully so. Um, but we need to make sure that we are engaging with the community-based organizations to come alongside them, provide multilingual resources, because that's also another concern is that we are only providing resources in dominant languages like English um, and Spanish now. But we, we definitely need to make sure that we're as inclusive as possible. So as a result of its importance, many equate digital access to being an essential right. Mm -hmm. um, do you agree? And if so, who's responsible for building out that infrastructure to provide yeah. access to all? 
I do, and that is going to be something that requires intense collaboration with multiple agencies. Again, we work very closely with NTIA, the National Telecommunications and Information Agency, out of the Department of Commerce. They're the ones that receive the $65 billion um, from the bipartisan infrastructure law that was signed by President Biden in November of 2021. Um, $65 billion sounds massive, but we know it's not enough. Um, so we are helping support that. The FCC also has the Affordable Connectivity Program. We know that the White House is paying attention to this, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. Again, many agencies, and we can't do it alone. So we do need those partnerships with state agencies, with the school districts, and then those community-based organizations. All right, let's talk more about this $65 billion, because okay. that is a, that is a, a big, uh, big number. Yep. Are there specific outlays for schools or other educational institutions where the funding would have substantive impact on students and their learning. Yep, so it is split. Um, there is about 42 billion, so weird to say that number, 42 billion dollars that is going towards some different programs, and then about three billion that is going towards the um, state digital equity plans. And so that's where we are right now as far as impacting education most specifically. So states applied for this planning grant last November, and all 50 states, six territories, and almost 500 tribes applied for this and received funding to develop a digital equity plan that would ensure this home access. Whether they are learners in early learning, like I used to teach my, my preschool and kindergartners, to adult learners. We know that everyone needs that access. So they're in the process of developing their digital equity plans. Those should be posted by June, July by the state for public comment, and then they need to be wrapped up by October, November. And then they move into the next phase of grants that are more about the implementation and the capacity building within each state. So education is not actually called out as a specific population. Mm -hmm. And so we've been trying to bring that forward. We work very closely again with the digital equity director, um, Angie T. Bennett uh, at NTIA and saying, okay, education, please make sure that we're there. <laughs> right. And so we've put out a couple of resources and, and um, introduced a lot of folks to a state broadband officer, to the educators and to the educational agency. So I just want to be, just so that I'm clear. So yeah. this $3 billion for state equity plans. Yep. And you have to you have to go to the guy and say, hey, don't forget about education. Yeah. So I just want to make make sure I'm understanding <laughs> this right. You're competing with other interests over this three billion dollars for the state equity plans. Yeah. So there are there are considered covered populations, and they are called out. So it includes folks that are experiencing homelessness. There are folks that are um, migrant workers. Different populations, mm -hmm. but education was not called out specifically. So we're trying to advocate to make sure that education is included. Got it. So because of the proliferation of technology like cell phones and computers, yeah. and a lot of it um, is so intuitive. The assumption is that students are self-taught, mm. but how are students learning digital, digital literacy? That's a very good question. Um, we know that there are definitely differences between someone like in my generation that grew up without the internet and then halfway through my education experience got the internet. You know, remember dial-up. Um, and so that is, that is definitely a difference for, uh, for the new generations that were born digital. Uh, however, we also know that they are passively 
tend, like most often, passively using that technology, not necessarily actively using that for creation and collaboration. So this is something that we're working on as far as professional development for teachers to create those instances. Um, but digital literacy is part of the definition of digital inclusion. And that, again, comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law that defined, for the first time ever, digital equity and digital inclusion. So it was codified in law, and digital inclusion is connectivity and devices, instructional content, so access to those resources, because once we take away the physical textbooks, if we can't be in the classroom, what do we have access to? So making sure that we have access to those instructional resources, and then the digital literacy plays a huge part of that. But um, it is not exclusive to the students. Of course, there are things that we can do in the classroom to ensure that students know how to navigate um, different types of devices and websites and, and the use of the technology. But we also know that given the fact that we were in the pandemic uh, and needed that support from families and caregivers, we also know that our families and caregivers and communities need those digital literacy skills. So let's talk about um, access mm -hmm. to um, devices, to broadband, because not all access is the same. No. Um, there are the students who have unfettered access to broadband, the technology to take advantage of it, and more importantly, the money to yeah. pay for it. Yep. So surely this exacerbates the, the digital divide. What educational advantages do those students with unfettered access have? Mm -hmm. And then we're gonna talk about the folks who don't yeah. have unfettered yeah. access. The unfettered access is a, is a really good point, and we recognize that in more affluent communities, that is where we see it. Um, those that are in lower socioeconomic status uh, or free and reduced price lunch are not able to necessarily um, access that at all times, and then that impacts not only their ability to participate in learning, but also then that continuing learning, because we know that it does not stop you know, after the school day. Mm -hmm. um, and so we see uh, students that do have that unfettered access being able to take advantage of programs that are available online, um, after school, before school, summer learning programs, things like that. And so we would like to continue, obviously, to get access to those that don't so that they can also take advantage of those, those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so then those students who don't have unfettered access, let's say they aren't ever able to access all of those resources, What's the fear of what will happen to that cohort of students? Mm -hmm. we're, we're very worried about students falling behind. Um, and we have tried, we have invested so much money through our relief dollars and um, brought in kind of wraparound services, whether it's community schools where we have before and after school programs, our summer enrichment programs. Um, we can offer as many of those as possible, but when they step away from a school campus or any sort of um, physical place that has connectivity, we know that they automatically lose access. And so it is a concern of ours um, across the board, whether they are in K-12, higher education, or even adult education, um, that they need to continue to push for um, ubiquitous access. I have a question here that is more, like is supposed to come later, but I want okay. to ask it now, because you know, the, school, the school year is about to end. Yeah. Many districts are, are about to close for the summer, and many of the students in some of these districts, they're given school-provided laptops or yep. phones or tablets, yep. um, which will have to be turned in. Yeah. How much educational attainment or connection to the wider world is lost? Yeah without access to those devices or, or to the internet during the summer. Yep. So that has typically been the case, especially for school districts that have been a one-to-one, -one. so one device per student um, pre-pandemic. That has been 
pretty um, consistent as far as we turn our devices in, we refresh them over the summer, make sure that they're ready to go for the next school year. With the pandemic, we are seeing more school districts say, we will take it for a week instead and be able to refresh a certain amount and then be able to give it back to students. Mm -hmm. Because we also know it's not just the students that are accessing those school-issued devices. It is a loss for the entire family most often. Um, and so we want to make sure that they are continuing to get that access. So again, we're not necessarily saying take them all away. And we're actually encouraging more school districts to say, can you please continue to provide that access to those devices? So we were talking a lot about what you're doing, what the Department of Education is doing, what the administration is doing, the mm. federal government is doing about all this. I'm sitting here wondering, where's the private sector? Mm. What's the role of the private sector here? We've worked very closely with um, some of the largest internet service providers, and so has the White House as far as getting commitments from the ISPs um, to be able to provide those packages that fall within the $30 range that is part of the Affordable Connectivity Program. So if you are not familiar with that, the Affordable Connectivity Program is a $30 stipend. That is the easiest way to describe it. Um, if you are on tribal lands, it's up to $75 a month. So you apply for this. If you qualify for um, services such as Medicare, Medicaid, um, SNAP benefits, or in our case for education, free and reduced price lunch for our students, then you automatically qualify for this program. Again, this is that awareness building. <laughs> yeah, uh, I didn't know about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I don't have kids yeah. in school, so I wouldn't know about it. But That's okay. I'm sure there are lots of people who are watching right. online right now who don't realize right. this. Right. Yes. Tech.ed.gov slash ACP. Say that again. Tech.ed.gov.gov.gov. .gov slash ACP. Slash ACP. We have all the information there for you. Go on, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you all are going to visit our website. Uh, <laughs> so the, the White House was able to firm up commitments, and the FCC, I should say, um, were able to firm up commitments from the largest ISPs, the internet service providers, to provide specific plans at that $30 price. Um, when the pandemic first started and all of the ISPs were trying to provide their own kind of um, coverage wherever they may be, there were limitations to those plans. There was a data cap. There was, if you had a previous balance um, as a former customer and you couldn't take advantage of this program. So like they've eliminated as many obstacles as possible and that has been a commitment that the, the private sector has made for a lot of, for our, excuse me, for these households that would qualify. I'm sitting here wondering, and I don't know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how much of the, how much of the country actually has access to broadband? That's a really good question. Um, I would say that the FCC has the most current data mm -hmm. on that. They released a broadband map um, that is also kind of crowdsourced. You can actually go out and look at your connectivity rate wherever you may be. If you have a mobile device or if a laptop, you can actually then inform them if it is accurate or not accurate. Mm. And so the FCC has that map um, with more specific numbers. <laughs> you know, that, was, that was pretty good for being put on the spot. You actually had an answer. <laughs> I appreciate that. So you mentioned a moment ago that you, you were an educator yep. before you joined the Department of Education. If I remember right, you said, Kindergartners? Preschool. Preschool. Yeah. And kindergarten. Yeah. Pre preschool and kindergarten. <laughs> okay, as an aside, which was easier, the preschoolers <laughs> or the federal government? <laughs> 
Which one is easier? Hmm. <laughs> so the funny thing is when I moved into uh, the, like the state ed tech director role after leaving elementary school, I was like, oh, they're just children in bigger bodies. Okay. Uh, so that, <laughs> I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> okay. All right. So then how does your, then how does your experience in the classroom inform what you're oh, doing now? So much so. I am incredibly grateful for my classroom experience. It helps inform any of the policy that we're doing within our office, but then also the policy across the entire agency. Um, for example, you know, talking with my colleagues in the Student Privacy Policy Office, we are very concerned about who has access to student data right now. And they are working on some new um, kind of regulations around language for FERPA, if you're familiar with that. Um, and we had the conversation, gosh, it's been well over a year ago, where they said, here's what we're thinking. And they presented the language. And I was like, OK, so if I were teaching kindergarten, this is how I would interpret that. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we were thinking. I was like, OK, this is how I would interpret that as a practitioner. And so it's, it's those types of instances that I'm like, mm -hmm, yep, very grateful for my experience. You know, you just said something that, um, again, I did not realize. When you're giving a tablet um, to a student, yep. all of their, the data, what they're searching and what they're doing, the, the data is going somewhere. Can you talk a little bit more about the concerns about access to student data? Sure. So um, FERPA, if you're familiar with HIPAA, that is for medical purposes. FERPA is for education purposes. It was actually signed, I believe, in 1972, long before educational yeah. technology or technology used in any sort of classroom. We were looking more at paper-based records and who had access to those. Now we have to consider educational technology and who has access to that. So many school districts, in fact, I believe um, the current data shows, um, according to um, Learn Platform, shows 1,400 ed tech tools on average for a school district. Hmm. Uh-huh. 1,400. Many of them do the same thing. <laughs> so we have to make sure that we are being very um, conscious of our student data that is part of that. So that means that those ed tech tools have access to things like student information, the first name, the last name, to be able to use different accounts. I used a program whenever I was teaching kindergarten that helped with reading. And so each one of them had their own name, their own username that they would click the button on and then go on and, and do their reading um, and practice uh, for like reading fluency. And so that means that they had access to it. And so we have to be very careful as far as how we are having those conversations. It requires us to really look at terms of service um, when we are going to procure the actual technology itself um, and making sure that we're not giving away too much personally identifiable in identifiable information or PII. So in the two minutes or so we yeah. have left, um, <clears throat> I'm a genie and I'm going to grant you oh. one, one wish. Oh. If there is one thing you could do, if I indeed were a genie and I could make this happen, <laughs> what's the one thing you would do right away to um, affect change, however you mm -hmm. define it, um, in the work that you're doing? Ooh. Um, I think we need, it's the infrastructure. Uh, the infrastructure has to be there in order for us to get to that digital equity and that make sure that everyone has access. And it's not just access at schools, it's access at home. And so, again, the FCC and um, NTIA are working on the physical infrastructure, the, the actual fiber that we can run to native populations, more rural areas. And so it has to be the infrastructure. Like, if I could magically do that, the pipes are already in the ground, everyone's connected. 
Okay, so we've got a minute and 45 seconds left. I'll give you, I'll grant you another wish. Okay, so you've got the fiber in the ground. Okay. Then what's the next thing? The next thing is um, time for our professional like educators to learn and practice with the tools to make um, technology-enabled learning happen. Okay, you get a third. Because I'm a journalist. <laughs> Journalists like things in threes. If you ever notice in a story, it's not really a story until there are three examples so are three. to okay. point to point the reader. So, so it, it's almost like a five-paragraph essay then. Here we go into, uh, yeah, okay. So I would say the third thing is, um, oh gosh, instructional resources that are also available um, I firmly believe in open educational resources, which are those that do not have a copyright attached to them. Um, so they allow for a customization and localization. We know that textbooks are written for four large major states. Um, I did not teach in one of those states. I taught in Nebraska. So that was not helpful for my kindergartners who are learning to read to see about skiing Hmm. when they had never skied. So it's, um, it's access to more of those instructional resources that can then be customized for our, our local context. Christina Ishmael, Deputy Director of the Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology, thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's edited by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Thursday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.